You're listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Johnny Sweeney and I help connect digital leaders with interim talents and I'm your host. Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, everyone. Thank you for joining me today to discuss diversity within the NHS. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So I'll start. My name's Johnny and I work on the NHS team here at Evolution. I'm working with several ICSs, ICBs and AHSNs, along with two governing bodies. Our goal is to help those organisations realise their true potential towards better patient care through digital technology and innovation. So that's me. Masood, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Dr Masood Ahmed. So I'm currently the Associate Chief Clinical Information Officer for NHS Midlands, um, where we serve 11 ICSs uh, across the region and a population of 10 million. I'm also the Chief Digital Officer for the West Midlands Academic Health Science Network, where um, we look at the digital strategy across the West Midlands, really around innovation and sort of the adoption and spread of innovation. I'm also recently I've been appointed as a visiting lecturer to UCL and their Global Business School for Health, where I teach on digital health and startups. Um, And uh, as today's topic is around sort of diversity, I'm also on the NHS Confederation BME Leadership Network Steering Group, where we look at emerging leaders from um, a diverse background and how to support them on their journey within the NHS. Thank you, Masood. Alia, can you go next? Thanks, Johnny. So my name is Dr. Alia Goyle. I'm a general practitioner and I'm also a primary care clinical leadership executive for NHS in Black Country. So that's Black Country Integrated Care Board. And my specialist area is health inequalities, ethnic minority health and population health. I'm also heavily involved in colleague support um, and I do that through various roles of the Royal College of GPs. Um, I've been nationally elected to council this year after a vote of 50,000 members and I'm on the national Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Steering Group, and I support colleagues at a local NHS trust in Sanwell. Brilliant. Thank you, Alia. Uh, Terry, would you like to go next, please? So, uh, hi, I'm Terry Hudson. Um, I'm also a, a, a doctor by background, so I'm a GP um, like Alia. Um, I also work for South Yorkshire Integrated Care Board as their clinical lead for population health and health inequalities, um, and also a lead for system development. Perfect. Thank you, Terry. And finally, Tristy. Hello, uh, I'm Tristy Tanaka. I'm head of the Chief Medical Office Directorate in the NHS Black Country Integrated Care Board. Um, outside of my day job, um, I'm part of BCS Women, so that's the British Computing Society, the Chartered Institute for IT. I'm also part of the uh, Digital Divide Specialist Group. Um, I do mentoring on the side uh, to support women in tech and leadership. Um, big advocate for diversity and inclusion and um, would love to see more about belonging in the NHS. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tristy. So now that we're all introduced, let's move on to your questions related to the topic, diversity within the NHS. As usual, I'll work my way around the room. Uh, we'll ask the questions and pose the answers from everybody. And soon, could we please start off with your question? Sure, thank you. Um, So I think the question that I wanted to bring to the group was really around the opportunity of digital transformation. And um, I suppose one of the the challenges is that often we we can look at digital as being the panacea for for all our troubles. But actually, my concern is whether digital transformation will lead to better or worse outcomes for our underserved communities. Um, And I think from my perspective, you know, when I when I think back, um, really, I became aware of the potential negatives 
um, during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, um, over the course of about two years, I was the chief medical officer for uh, the Black Country and West Birmingham CCG. And that as a system is kind of a population of about 1.5 million, but it's actually the second most deprived system um, in the country. And I think really there, there was a steep learning curve from my perspective in the sense that I very much believe in digital and digital transformation and, and a, a very much a champion for innovation. Um, but at the same time, when I was leading the system through the pandemic, um, I kind of jumped to sometimes the wrong conclusions or the assumptions that digital could solve the problems. And I think for me, the first point of reflection was during the vaccination program in that we had a lot of uh, misinformation going around. And I think centrally, a lot of the messaging and information that came through was that for our diverse communities, there was a poor uptake. And I think it was a question of, well, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to use digital to identify those groups, but also how are we going to use digital to engage with those groups? And so there are a couple of aspects in terms of that digital approach that I think were really helpful. Um, but for me, it was really when I engaged with the communities that I started to understand um, what it, it meant in terms of the opportunities and actually understanding what our communities were looking for. So it's not black and white. So it's not that our communities don't like digital or do like digital. There's a mix. Every community is, you know, none of our communities are homogenous. There is such a richness in terms of diversity within diversity. And so recognizing that is really important, but at the same time, really challenging. And so when you start to see the, the richness in terms of the variety within the fabric of our society, <clears throat> you start to realize that actually how we plan our services, how we plan our digital capability uh, and our offerings and sort of services and, and sort of when we're looking at service redesign, it's taking that into account. And I think one of the key things is that we, we often talk about health inequalities, but what I found was that often uh, in terms of our approach, health inequalities would, would be an afterthought and a tick box exercise. And so I think as a system, we started to recognize the importance of, um, if you like, a, a health equity assessment in terms of our planning. And I think especially when you look at digital transformation, it's building in some of those tools to your thinking when you're planning. So certainly within our, our system, we started to use the um, health equity assessment tool, so the HEAT um, approach. And what was really useful was going through the training, um, not just myself, but my team, to kind of start to frame our thinking um, in terms of that digital journey and really rather than making assumptions, which I think we're often wrong, understanding and asking the question, engaging with our communities to understand what their needs were and how best to respond. Um, so I think that that's that's my perspective. Now, um, I'm quite quite excited that, you know, I, 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 I've got a couple of colleagues here that have all played their part 
um, some on that journey with me, um, others from a different system. So I guess um, from my perspective, I'd like to kind of pass it on um, to a colleague. Um, seeing as I touched upon health inequalities, I'm, uh, uh, Alia, I'd like to get your thoughts first because you are you are uh, you were part of my team in terms of the health inequalities lead, and so you I know did a lot of work engaging with communities not just during the pandemic but also you were very active when we um were accepting a lot of uh, refugees from afghanistan um in terms of our rapid response so be good to hear what your thoughts are around the digital angle it looks as if alia's frozen so um i thought she was deep in thought and i guess <laughs> these are the that's the wonder of technology um tristy you, if i move to you you've got a very much a digital transformation background what were your kind of reflections and observations as we were on that journey? Um, well, I thought it was amazing that uh, the speed and scale with which the NHS responded to the um, closure of services um, and sites uh, to be able to protect those um, that needed protection um, was quite amazing. I know that there had been many years of preparing for bringing digital to um, services and in the communities. Um, I, I actually probably would reframe the question just a little bit. Um, and, and I think, Ms. Ud, I understood you wanted to know whether or not digital transformation might worsen outcomes. So I suppose before I go on and answer the question in the way I wanted to answer it, um, whether Alia, if you wanted to tip in on uh, your experiences with uh, those communities because I was not directly involved. Yeah, thanks so much, um, Tristy. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Um, so yeah, so my role is around health inequalities, and as we've already touched upon, you know, when we talk about health inequalities in our communities, that you know, they are communities within communities. They have their own needs, they have their own wants, they have their own their own things that really matter to them, and I think that's key because at the end of the day, I do believe that communities will engage with whatever our content is um, if they feel that it resonates with them, um, and the only way to find that out is actually to ask is actually to go into those communities find out what matters to them and the ways in which they want to be reached and it's really quite interesting when when we talk about digital transformation sometimes people have this idea that you know our diverse communities for example don't know how to operate tech and yet even if you go abroad even if you go to you know rural villages people do have smartphones um even the people who've got the corner shops in in different countries have smartphones and we know that with certain types of app, for, particularly with social messaging apps, they're quite savvy in how those messages are shared. And certainly when I've been doing clinics in the community, um, a lot of a lot of digital um, content is shared within their own closed groups. So I think that in terms of how we share our, our um, content, I think digital can be a way forward as long as it's done in the right way. It's very important to use the HEAT tool, as, as, as Masood's already touched upon, so the health equity assessment tool, just to make sure that we don't inadvertently and without meaning to exacerbate health inequalities, because of course, a lot of the things that we do, um, although we desire to have good outcomes, there may be unintended consequences, um, because often we look through the lens of our own experience. And a large part of my job is to ensure that people try to step out of their own comfort zone and try to view things from people in in 
the, the view the experiences that our patients have within our patient spaces. So we've touched upon the fact that within the black country, it's the second most deprived ICS in the country. And so some of the things that may work in other parts of the country won't necessarily work within our within our area because the starting point is different so it's about how we reach the communities in the way that matters to them but really using them as an effective partner in the delivery of those services thank you for that alia and tristy should we come back on to you yeah i think the thing i wanted to say was um there's something about digital transformation and speed and scale and um speed requires time and time is often based on the experts. The experts are fully employed to be able to give their time to those priorities. The question is whether the communities have the time and the understanding and whether the experts have given the time and the understanding to the communities to be able to um, provide that feedback, not only feedback, but actually to have their feedback actioned on. And I think that that's probably quite a culture shift that the NHS and uh, so health and care are, are looking to adopt and adapt in in the relative services that are priorities at the moment for digital transformation. There's something about being able to create respectful feedback loops um, because I think there's something about not being able to do that with current workforce capacity issues and the prioritization of of the issues that have come out of the pandemic, um, which I think creates a a huge challenge, if not more so for, for health and care at the moment, because um, the time it takes to be able to to listen to communities and to feedback is a wholly different set of skills and services and uh, ways of de- designing services that maybe hasn't been done before uh, on top of the pressures of, of being able to restore services to, to what people thought they were before. There's a real danger, I think, the risk is around rela- building those relationships and uh, the potential for breaking trust. Um, and I think that this is quite a delicate time for the NHS in particular. Uh, because people have waited in in some ways, in many ways, uh, for the last two years to be able to experience the health services they need. I think I think that aspect of trust <clears throat> is really important, and and certainly through the the pandemic, um, making time was became a priority for me in order to have meaningful engagement with our communities. And actually it was then through various faith groups, it was through organizations such as Near Neighbors that I got access to our communities and actually learned a lot about why there was mistrust and why there was um, hesitation to engage. And I think we had distilled that hesitancy down to misinformation and um, you know I think from an NHS perspective we were a little bit lazy in our assumptions and it wasn't until we kind of properly engaged that we started to understand um, at a deeper level how we were going to build those bridges um, and, and again, move away from those assumptions. I think, Alia, you did a great piece of work, which I perhaps you missed. I mentioned it when, when we had to respond to the refugee crisis and we had a number of Afghan refugees um, uh, uh, that came into Wolverhampton. And Alia was part of that rapid response. And actually, the key thing was that she kind of just went to the community centres and she kind of sat with the people that were there so rather than just kind of you know be online and ask questions she sat she observed she immersed herself in that environment and that's when she started to see if you like how how 
that group were were um, feeling, how they were challenged by the new environment. Uh, and actually, it was that intelligence that really helped us respond in a meaningful way. And, and as Alia said, that digital response, you know, a lot of people have uh, smart access to smartphones. Um, you know, I, I, I do some work with the homeless and, you know, it, it's easy to assume that they won't have smartphones. Many of them do. But what they might not have is connectivity. And so, you know, it's understanding what is the issue or they may not have the skills. And so there, it, it, it's not a simple kind of um, uh, uh, problem that we're solving. These are complex issues. Um, Terry, I was going to say, what was your experience in South Yorkshire? So um, a lot of what you said, you know, really, really chimes with me. Similar, similar experiences. Um, sort of early on in the pandemic, I was working as uh, chair and a locality representative in in Sheffield CCG. Um, and Sheffield's a really interesting city in terms of the the contrasts. Um, we, we have some of the you know wealthiest areas outside of London. And equally, some of the most deprived parts of the country, and we, we have the the famous tale of uh, the number forty two, I think, or the number fifty two bus in Sheffield, where you know within half an hour you you can be experiencing, um, and and in in those communities with with very different extremes. Um, really, sort of when when we approached our sort of digital transformation, um, you know, the, sort of the, we we really have to have this mantra that technologies there for us as a system um often because you know we we've got health improvements um we've got strategies we've got all of these things in mind that we we have as systems as nhs organizations um but actually when you take that technology out to people living in communities um the question they're really going to ask you is how does using this piece of tech or this piece of digital um technology make my life easier how does it make my life better? And I think there's a really important part in, um, as we've already alluded to, um, actively engaging with communities to help understand that. Um, because as, as you've said, Masood, you know, we can make all sorts of assumptions about, you know, oh, great, you know, I'll, I'll create this new phone app or we'll text people. Um, but actually, um, there's there's something about the acceptability um, of that technology to community. So I always think as as we sort of take a bit of a design uh, thinking approach, I think we really need to be clear on, on what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Um, but as you go into communities, you know, they, they, they want to know that, you know, that this this whatever we're talking about, whatever we're proposing, you know, is it doable? Is it sensible? In the context of my community is it attuned to to what our community needs and what our community is doing um and is it fair so that th those things i think are always um there in the background i think as we we kind of work with communities um and particularly as i sort of think back to covid um we didn't have all the technologies there um or we didn't have technological strategies up and ready um and there was very much discussions about what's the art of the possible here you know what have we got and what is what is possible and I think we saw um multiple innovations so um something Alia mentioned earlier was sort of the the 
um, messaging groups within communities. Um, and before we had a COVID vaccine, we were really pushing hard for everyone to have their flu vaccine, um, particularly vulnerable groups in, in that, that sort of first year of the pandemic. Um, and actually working with communities and making a video with them, knowing that that would be shared inside um, different community groups um, in a way that was helpful to them. Um, is a different communication style than than sort of you know the the big institutions publishing things on their Twitter accounts and so on and so forth. Um, and really, you know, those are ideas that our comms teams came up with by going out and talking directly to communities. You know, how can we help you um, kind of share this messaging? How can how can we um, understand best how that information will flow within a community and be shared within a community with, with a positive response. And so I think there is something about, again, going back and, and asking about the art of the possible. Um, you know, there's something about innovating at speed, but not necessarily having to reinvent new technologies, just apply them in different circumstances in a way that that works. Um, but beyond, um, beyond sort of just COVID vaccinations in communities and, and sort of thinking about geographical communities. Um, we've seen sort of a, a revolution, um, particularly in some of the technology we were using in general practice, um, you know, communicating with patients by text messaging back in 2018. We, we would all been kind of, you know, tutting and sort of talking about all the governance. And actually that that kind of rapid pace was because we didn't really have an alternative. And, you know, the the, the phrase never waste a good crisis um, always sort of cropped up in our conversations. So whilst we asked that question about digital exclusion in geographical communities, um, sort of my practical experience of, of using some of these in, in my clinics has been uh, some patients, um, you know, sort of particularly, particularly um, patients with neurodiversity um, who would find that that sort of direct communication um, in a consultation room very difficult are actually beginning to embrace this. So we, we always just have to balance. We might be excluding people that don't have access to technologies, but we're also opening a, a new layer of inclusion in in different population groups. Um, I think the, the the trick and the question for us is how do we best balance that so that you know we we can improve that accessibility um, to healthcare for all people. Perfect. Thank you for that, Terry. Alia, did you have a comment just to add in there? Yeah. So so thanks, Terry. You you've kind of highlighted some of the things that I actually really liked about the pandemic, uh, which was this risk positive approach. So, you know, the thing about not waiting a good crisis, you know, there were things that people had wanted to do for years and years, but there were always barriers. So, for example, you know, moving the dial forward with with digital access. But then because we were in this situation where we had no other choice, um, it was a huge driver for, for things happening and, and people just wanting to try stuff with that risk positive approach. Um, I'm really pleased that you mentioned neurodisability because when we talk about diversity although a lot of what we talk about is centered upon our ethnic minority communities or our communities who live in um you know adverse socioeconomic conditions um i think disability is very very important because particularly also um again because i'm a i um, do a lot around disability and equality and diver and diversity you know there are colleagues who also have long-term health conditions and disability who themselves were excluded from participating and being part of the workforce but being able to work in 
new ways, including, um, you know, working from home, for example, setting up remote services, servers from our home offices meant that digital was not only beneficial for our patients, but it was actually also beneficial for our workforce. And, the, and it actually increased productivity because we felt that, you know, we could actually triage um, the needs of our patients more, more um, effectively. And therefore, we were actually doing more, more consultations, getting a greater patient flow. Um, and ultimately, everybody won as a result of that. So, yeah, lots of positives there. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for that, Alia. Um, Masood, I hope that answered your, your question quite nicely there. Yeah, I, I, th I think it did. I mean, I think often we can look at transformation, digital transformation through a single lens. And actually, um, it's been good to get the views from from sort of Terry, Alia and Tristy, because I think that it, it, that provides that perspective in terms of the opportunities, but also the challenges. Wonderful. Right. With that, then, I think we'll move on to our next question. Ali, would you like to go next with your question? Thanks. So, yes, yeah, so my question was really around how do we ensure that there is accountability in systems and across health and care to ensure that leadership reflects the population served? And the reason I kind of came up with this question um, was actually in reference to an HSJ article that came out in 2020, where, it, where the, the headline was around... Um, in the city that we live in, so we live in, so I live in Birmingham. Um, you know, the executives of of all the trusts um, were did not reflect the population. So the population in Birmingham, forty percent of the population is from diverse minority ethnic communities, and none of the executives were from those communities. And really, when we talk about the needs of our communities and the decision makers around the table, um, it's really important to make sure that we have those insights. Um, because, again, we need to look through the lens of the experiences of the people that we're trying to serve. Um, and when I was at um, I was at Best Practice recently, actually, and we were talking about um, some of the experiences of some of our, our colleagues um, in leadership and, and around the discrimination that they felt they had from colleagues um, and how they reported that. And it actually made me think about the impact of discrimination on career progression and what incentive is there for systems to improve the um, leadership representation? Because for some people to have increased diversity in leadership, they see it as a loss. They see it as a loss um, to the way of doing things. Um, and it can be difficult for some people to kind of acknowledge that, you know, better decisions are made by a more diverse board and effectively we get better health outcomes. So I'd be interested in what your thoughts are. Thank you for that, Alia. Uh, Terry, if we're going to start with you this time. Okay, thank you. Um, I think it's a really interesting question, Alia, and um, I've, I've been on several boards that have grappled with the, the same question. Um, you know, board, boards um, of decision makers that don't necessarily reflect the communities um, for which they're set up to serve. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't think we ever got to a space where we knew the answer. Um, and I, I think that's one of the challenges we've got. I think you, you've alluded to, to your experiences in Birmingham. Um, and it'll be interesting as we go through this discussion, really, to, to sort of hear how you address that. And, and whether indeed it, it it has been addressed, and I I think um, sort of nationally we we've got a bit of a problem um, in terms of of diversity of leadership. Um, 
so as I say, um, you know, sort of our, our approach in in Sheffield um, at the time was to to look at look at it through multiple different lenses. And I think, again, you know, sort of COVID shining a light on health inequalities um, and particularly the unequal impact um, on black and minority ethnic populations um, began to sort of open up you know really broad and rich conversation in multiple different arenas um i think it was really incumbent on us as as groups of leaders to say nothing really you know not jump in with the answers but actually listen um so i think you know as, as we start with that how do we assure that there's accountability accountability in systems um actually we just need to stop and we need to listen and part of that accountability um, is listening, but it's also hearing from the communities that we serve about how we are best accountable to them. You know, take the question back. I often think one of the things that we we we, we do in um, boards and committees is we say, okay, well, we've got a problem with X. Here's our plan. We'll be more accountable by creating this plan. And actually, we haven't really gone back and tested that out with communities. Um, one of the things that, you know, sort of because of structural discrimination that, that we've got embedded in our systems up and down the country is sometimes there isn't a pipeline of diverse leaders coming through. And I think, you know, what we need to think about in our workforce planning is actually, you know, you, you've mentioned already on, on the previous question. Actually, there's some there's some real richness in our existing workforce. And we've got a, a responsibility to, you know, have appropriate talent management where we're giving people opportunities to come up. And I think one of the um, ways in which um, certainly boards can think about this is, you know, looking at the diversity of your workforce. You know, that that really needs to be one of those key things that you're monitoring all the time in the same way that the organization's monitoring its its financial bottom line. Um, but it has to be done in a way that isn't just tokenistic. It, it's a way of having that question on the agenda all of the time um, and actually having that opportunity to, to champion those discussions at every single uh, opportunity that you get. Um, so in, in South Yorkshire, some of the organizations um, began to um, kind of create what what they were calling associate um, non-executive director roles so that you could get people from communities because we have to remember about those sort of uh, communities is the the expert insights are as invaluable to to boards um, as much as a retired director of finance that can come and hold your board to account around its numbers and, and give strategic steer so um, these don't kind of get us to solving um, an issue and answering this question immediately. But I do think we've, we've got to um, pause. We've got to admit that we, we don't have that diversity. I think we really need to listen um, to communities. And whilst we, we won't have diverse boards overnight, there are several steps that we can be taking now um, and actively doing that. And, and for me, you know, th this isn't, just a question um, about diversity and, and whether um, that is sort of acceptable to, to people sat around a board or acceptable to communities is actually a really important strategic approach for organisations in 
you know, being able to understand the needs of their communities um, and better serve them because you're having that richer conversation. It makes me wonder if if boards are ready for those conversations because they would naturally find them quite uncomfortable um, because it causes them to kind of self-reflect on their own positions um, and on their own aims and what drives them to be there as well. I think for anybody who is from a diverse background to put themselves forward, it does require a certain degree of bravery. Um, speaking for myself, you know, just putting myself up for national election um, with the Royal College of GPs. That does take bravery to kind of put yourself under that scrutiny, but also sometimes there's a concern that when you do meet those kind of aspirations, it's quite a lonely place. Um, do you, will you have allies there who will support you? Will 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 understand your perspective when you may actually just stand out as being someone who looks different or thinks differently from the rest of the people on the board? But there's certainly a lot of questions. Um, I. I, I I I agree, and I think um, absolutely, um, we had some really painful, awkward conversations because it does it does cause you to uh, to to kind of reflect on um, the positions that we hold as individuals and how how we got there. Um, but I think you know, uh, as you've alluded to, um, I I think you know we we we've got to have a really rich conversation about this. Um, because there are elements of diversity that isn't always visible. So you spoke earlier, didn't you, around um, disability? Yeah. Um, and you know, we we've got individuals on boards from LGBT backgrounds. We've got other other characteristics that may not necessarily be obvious. And I think there is that question um, around assumptions um, and around that bravery that it might take for those leaders to you know kind of actively show that that difference that they've got in those public arenas um, and again you know sort of coming from an lgbt background myself um it's not something that i've i've sort of ever hidden but i came into a senior role um and for me there was something important as a senior leader about trying to be visible and role modeling for other people and i think you know um which whichever you know kind of walk of life leaders come from um whatever diverse background we come from as we kind of climb into those leadership positions there's almost that incumbent responsibility on us to role model for other people um because you know it, it's really easier it, you know for, for us to sit around a, a board table um and grumble about diversity but not take our own action um to advocate for different people thank you terry masood did you have a comment to add there yeah yeah it's it, it it's <clears throat> it's an interesting one i mean i spent 10 years in the commercial sector and i um rose up the ranks very rapidly I felt it was very much a meritocracy and I was judged on my ability. And then I came back to the NHS and um, I speak. This is my personal perspective, not from an organizational perspective, but um, we have real problems. Let's be honest about it. You know, um, we talk about accountability. There is no accountability. Accountability is is about having consequences. Well, tell me what the consequences are. With our leaders, there are no consequences. You don't have to change anything. And actually, you look at the res data, the res data for uh, those in executive positions has not changed over the last few years in terms of diversity. And the reason it doesn't change is really simple. We, we 
recruit um, others that look or act like us. And, you know, it is, it, 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 from, from a, a, a human perspective, it takes people to have a really deep understanding of the benefits of diversity. I mean, all the you can go to the hard, Harvard Business Review. The evidence is all there. Diversity is a strength. And frankly, I hear it all the time from boards and execs. Oh, yes, we're very much believe in diversity. I'm sorry, I don't see it. I don't see it. It's lip service. Um, and, and, you know, I feel it. But the problem is when you share what you feel, you can't have those um, uh, honest conversations because those honest conversations make others feel uncomfortable. So whether it's as a person of color, whether it's someone from a LGBT background, whether it's someone from a, a, a disability perspective, um, I don't think the NHS is ready for those conversations. We talk the talk, we create plans, we share our values and, and you know, mission statements, but I'll be honest, there are very few leaders that I would look up to and say, yeah, they 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 walk the walk. You know, you look at places like West Yorkshire and Rob Webster. Now, there's a leader that actually um, leads by example. And I've spoken to many leaders within that system. And he has built a culture of belonging. But I don't see that elsewhere. And I think, again, you know, if you want accountability, you need to define what that means. And accountability cannot be without consequence. It doesn't make sense. So until we actually define and enforce, if you like, some sort of consequence to not delivering on uh, those missions, nothing's going to change. Nothing has changed. So it, it, it's it's frustrating, and I don't mean it to sound like a rant, but let's be honest. Let's let's really be honest. We as as the NHS, we've done terribly, and I know that because I work with those future leaders who keep trying to break through that that glass ceiling, and they can't. And it's not because of competency or capability. They are often more competent and more capable than the people who do get the jobs. And that's the problem, is that at some point, many of them just give up and we lose a huge amount of really talented individuals because it is exhausting. It's exhausting fighting against the system. And when you break through the glass ceiling, you're left with scars. And the problem is you can't show those scars. You can't share that pain because otherwise it's used against you. So we have a big challenge ahead of us. But the first thing is, let's be honest about where we are and let's be honest about what the challenges are. And let's be honest that actually the current system in terms of creating diversity, it doesn't work. From my, from my perspective, I'd rather see independent appointment boards. If you want, if you want diversity, then actually don't, you know, create independent boards that will then look to recruit the best people. And those best people will be different, which means there won't be a fit. People are always saying, oh, we're looking for a fit. Diversity is the opposite of having a fit. So, you know, in a, again, the whole construct of what we do is, is set up for failure. So we're never going to tackle diversity until we change our approach, our processes, accountability. And we have 
frankly, honest discussions that are that are uncomfortable and we hold people to account. Sorry, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> no, thank you very much for that, Monsieur. It's great input. Tristan, we'll come on to you. Um, I think I'm just blown away by Monsieur's honesty. Um, I I think there were some key words that I want to share um, about what diversity and inclusion requires. Um, so uh, picking up on um, Terry's point about being a role model for others, um, that requires bravery and courage um, because that means you're walking the talk. Um, there's something about vulnerability. So being able when you're role modeling to be vulnerable, which is incredibly difficult in a highly specialized, highly expert um, professional area that is about saving lives. Um, there's something about allyship um, in an environment that has been highly competitive. I don't think that there's any other way to put it. It's highly competitive within a public sector set of services that are vital to the, the health of the people of, of the country. And that's surprising to me um, how competitive it is um, for career progression. Um, and then there's something about changing the narrative and the goalposts around paid versus unpaid for lived experience and those um, invisible uh, qualities that we say we're embracing, um, there's definitely, again, a placing of, of priority or prominence on paid roles versus unpaid roles. And I think if you really want to understand communities, if you really want to serve those communities well, then maybe pay them um, appropriately instead of over the professional and expert advice, which tends to put forward um, a, um, a very homogeneous kind of way of doing things. There is the expert way of doing things. Um, and we can look at that as a much broader topic, Donnie, in the future. <laughs> but it starts to go down the mantra of unpicking what being a professional is. So um, there's diversity within the NHS and its workforce. And then there's the diversity that we're seeking from the communities that we're serving. Um, and that speaks to some of the assumptions, again, that Masood and, and Ali have talked about as well. well thank you very much, Tristy. Ali, I hope that brings a nice viewpoint to your question. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we'll move on to our next question then. So, Terry, over to you for the next question. So, um, thanks, Johnny. Um, and and just sort of as I, I think about asking this question, um, it, it is really chiming with a lot of what we've we've spoken about. Um, my my question really for for us the, this afternoon is, um, as health and care systems, how do we better engage with our diverse communities um, in a way that ensures the services that are provided for them are congruent, culturally congruent with those communities' needs, um, and also therefore make sure that they are active participants in their own health. Um, and I think we've 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 spoken a lot about engagement um, over over the sort of uh, last forty five minutes or so. Um, so I'm going to sort of keep my my answer sort of fairly fairly brief on on this one. Um, and really draw out some of the themes that we've we've already discussed. Um, but I think there is something about considering cultural competence in the services that we provide. Um, but I, I'll uh, take a, a, a quote um, from uh, Thomas Jefferson here about the most unequal thing that you can do um, is to treat equal people, sorry, unequal people equally. Um, and, and I think as you know, we, we 
we consider that engagement with communities you know we've actually got to get in there understand what the needs of those communities are versus what the kind of desire of a health system is to to see within that community and uh, we need to understand the wants in the communities and i think we actually need to understand better um what assets those communities have um go back to the point you made earlier masood we make all sorts of assumptions about individuals and all sorts of assumptions about communities um and actually unless we're out there engaging with them we don't know what those communities have got going what they've what they are capable of um and and, and there's an awful lot that they are um i think we've really got to take a, a genuine approach to co-creating um what we offer to to um different parts of our population um and i think just building on the point that i've made there you know often we we go down the rabbit hole of co-production being co-producing the solution to something um but there's a stage before that and that's actually co-producing the question and co-producing an understanding of what the problem is that we're, we're, we're trying to solve um, and then the final thing um just on the cultural competence so there's cultural competence in 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 the way that uh, care might be delivered um but actually you know there, there are areas where you know some of the protocols the clinical treatment protocols the way that we do things um are kind of geared up to you know that one size fits all approach and really that approach is either not culturally acceptable to to certain groups um and that acts as a barrier um or actually it's just not needed so i do think we, we we've got to think really really carefully about those things I'm going to stop there, but I can see Alia is uh, is raring to go and join us on this question. Yeah, so um, no, no, I think we've all got so much that we can add to this question. Um, you mentioned cultural competence several times, so I, I prefer to think of it not as cultural competence, but more as cultural humility. I think it's really important to not kind of pat ourselves on the back for listening but what we really need to do is to be humble in ourselves. Um, you know, communities, you know, exactly what you said about understanding community assets, communities are not helpless. You know, they're, they're excellent at organising themselves. We, you know, you only need to go into a community to see how they look after each other. You know, yeah, you know, they often have intergenerational living. The women tend to group together. If someone's had a baby, funerals and deaths, um, you know, the community comes together. So there are assets there that are valuable and that we can take forward and work with um, in order to achieve our own goals. But the humility aspect is very, very important because it's very easy to kind of, as you said, not define the correct problem because we think it's one thing, but actually it's another thing. And with regards to the definition of the problem, in our meetings um, in the ICB, you know, we often start with Einstein's quote, which is, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. So it's really drilling down. Um, and, and in terms of the community, I think Masood gave the example of, of what happened during the Afghan refugee crisis. And to do something, and we were in, I was in all these meetings and, and I just thought, 
I've had enough of these meetings. <laughs> I'm going to go down to the Refugee and Migrant Centre. And I did get a few funny looks in the meetings because no one had done that before. Um, and I just went and I sat with them in their space, saw what they were doing. And they were doing wonderful things that even I wasn't aware of because they understood the community and they understood the needs. And even to dial back to, you know, teaching people how to you know what the NHS is and how to access the services it's it's actually a step before the kind of things that we were trying to implement but you would only understand that by actually being a visible presence on the ground and the fact that they'd never engaged with someone who came from well at the time it was the CCG but now it's the ICB the fact that they'd never engaged with someone told me all that I needed to know because the approach had to be different to in order to achieve a, a new and different outcome. So there's so many things um, in the richness of our communities and, and learning from them, as well as learning with them. But we need to be humble enough to do so. But yeah, Tristy, did you have something to say? Uh, thank you for that, Alia. I, uh, I think there was something about being an honest translator of need. So I think when you come in um, to a space, and you may not have been invited. It's challenging to actually even listen because you're actually doing a lot of self-reflection in the moment. I think if you're trying to do it well and in, in following um, the principles around cultural humility. So um, I, I think that there's a lot to process and some people can process very quickly and other people, for others, it takes time to actually do that processing. Um, what I wanted to also add on to what you were saying there, Alia, was you were listening to their stories and their history. And there's something about being able to give platform to that to those stories and history um, and also amplify those voices because they probably aren't being heard. Um, because there is also an assumption around ownership of your stories and histories in a place where actually we all recognize the thing throughout this call that the structures that they exist, those stories and histories exist are unequal. So we haven't said the word equity yet, but I think you can't have a conversation today without diversity, equity, inclusion, and I'll add on belonging. I think I was gonna talk about that equity. You know, we, we often talk about inequalities and equality, but actually um, the language we use is really important, whether we talk about competency or whether we talk about humility, but equally, whether we talk about um, uh, equality or equity, because equity is kind of key to how we respond to our communities. And that's actually what we are striving for, is to provide equity, equity of access, equity of experience, and only then will we have equity of outcomes. Um, and I think, again, it, it's just being really clear you know, what are we trying to achieve and what are we trying to do and who are we trying to support? Um, and I think the other point is, um, as, uh, you know, w within our communities, if, you know, we, we have to be visible and accessible and welcomed into these environments. And um, I, I know, Alia, with you, you know, you responded very quickly and it was, you know, connecting you with um, a local leader and then being there. And the reality is the more that you sit and listen and engage, that's how you build trust. And actually, I, I went through that process repeatedly with various groups, but I couldn't have done it on my own. As chief medical officer, it, I wouldn't have got through the door. 
I needed um, groups such as Near Neighbours who kind of pulled me in and gave me that platform. Um, and then from there, I had to build the trust. And actually, what I, I learned was that um, there were so many different challenges and so many different perspectives. And I hadn't even understood some of the concerns our, our groups had, you know, and I engaged with our, our Roma and our traveler community. I engaged with um, our refugee and asylum seekers. I engaged with our LGBT community. Um, and they all had a different perspective. And equally in the same way, we had assumptions about them. They had a number of assumptions about us. And so part of what I, I, I did was, um, it, it, and actually probably the most, most useful part of that engagement was just answering questions and answering them, not with the kind of the standard, um, uh, if you like, uh, NHS speak that was on the leaflets, but actually being really open and honest about what we were trying to do and how we were trying to engage and, and, and asking what is it that you need. Um, but being being visible made a big difference. And one of the things, uh, another thing that I actually noticed was that um, I, I was lucky enough to do kind of, you know, the odd TV interview and so on. So I was on the BBC, I did radio and I was surprised by being out and about once lockdown had kind of stopped. Um, and getting stopped and saying, oh, didn't I see you on 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 TV? And aren't you, you know, aren't you our, our chief medical officer? And actually, that was really heartwarming because, you know what, our communities need to see that we have that diverse leadership. It means a lot to them to see that actually there are leaders within the NHS that look like them. Um, so it makes a difference. Thank you for that, Masood. Tristia, uh, sorry, Terry, I hope that brings a nice viewpoint from your question. Lovely. Thank you all. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just conscious of time. I'll make a note of this time page. I can get this part edited out. Um, so it's at 1.15. Are we all OK? We still run with the last question. I know we're a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, has every, anybody got anything they need to jump off for or are we OK to roll on? Or I'm, I'm good to carry for a bit longer. Just mindful yeah? that Tristy needs her question and we need to make sure she gets her type. <laughs> Excellent. That's fine. OK, then, so I'll, I'll roll it back on to you now, Tristy. OK, Tristy, if we could have your question as well, please. Uh, thank you, Johnny. So my question is, um, what do you think are the essentials to enable diversity and inclusion in health services? And I'm not going to answer that, actually, because <laughs> I would love to hear what the panel has to say. <laughs> so what so. are the essentials to enable diversity and inclusion in health services? I think it's about making really difficult decisions um, as um, healthcare leaders. Sometimes we are making strategic choices and prioritizing. And I think the reality is that if we are to develop our services in a responsive way for our diverse communities, then it means we need to prioritize them. And that's sometimes a really difficult decision. Um, we're seeing it at the moment in some of our provider settings, we're trying to tackle the elective waiting lists. And there are some organizations that are really um, taking that brave approach and looking at the various factors 
that are impacting um, the waiting lists and they are sometimes prioritizing those who come from either socially deprived areas or from uh, various sort of eth ethnic um, backgrounds because they realize that actually long term by prioritizing some of the, the, those populations it benefits the system in terms of um if you like the, the 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 downstream impact and costs but at the same time it can look unfair because it means you're getting people to to jump the queue if you like but those decisions are really tough and brave um and i think it, it creates a number of ethical dilemmas in terms of who you prioritize and how. Um, but I think those are the really difficult conversations we need to have and we need to understand why we're going to make those difficult decisions. My worry is that we don't always have the leaders that are willing to make those tough decisions because they are tough and they are controversial and therefore we stick with the status quo. And if we stick with the status quo, then actually we aren't progressing um, with this agenda. Thank you, Masood. Ali, did you have a comment to make there? Yeah, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go slightly at a slant to to what you've said. So, so I think, and and it actually pains me to say this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. That in terms of the essentials to enable diversity and inclusion in the delivery of healthcare services, you know, we're past the point where we require people who are innovative, visionary and represent the community as I, I'd like to think that the people on this call do. I think the only way to ensure that is really through what's happening at the moment. So for example, a top-down approach. So the core 20 plus five um, initiative from NHS England and tackling health inequalities has mandated that there is an allocation of funds to meet these criteria and meet these objectives. And certainly within the black country, you know, our our um, plus, which means that our target populations include the BAME, back, the BAME groups, the homeless groups, the refugee and migrant populations, because these are the populations that have been left behind, have let, been let down through years and years of essentially being invisible. So when we talk about the essentials of diversity and inclusion, what we need is very much carrot and stick incentivization and we do need a top-down approach because unfortunately it pains me to say it's the only way that things get done um, and I do genuinely believe that now that we have these kind of things in place the um, core 20 plus 5 um, which is basically saying that you have no choice but to do this and you are going to have to find a way and you will be judged and you will be assessed and it will impact on your funding um, is, is the only way of doing it because you know we've, we've had enough of people you know you know looking for brave leadership and now because we are brave everyone on this call is brave in their own way um and quite frankly i think we're past that point now and we have to do it where you have no choice but to actually get your act together terry you look like you've got lots to say uh yeah <laughs> unusually for me there alia um so i i agree with you um but i just want to share a little bit of of kind of how i got to that that layer of um agreement so when the the you know the the core twenty plus five was kind of first floated, um, I could almost feel a little bit of resistance in my bones that you know this was just another formulaic 
um, you know, performance managed approach that was going to be thrust upon us as systems. Um, and actually, I, I, I think it's quite a nice tool because you've got the plus. It does allow you to be flexible and, and work with your population. Um, but again, you know, it, it, it is something now being given to systems. There's no choice, but there is some accountability there. And I think that, that that's something really important. And as I was just sort of thinking through, you know, kind of how, how am I going to answer this question? I was thinking, OK, well, we, we, we talk a lot about diversity, inclusion, inequality as, as though we think everybody knows what it means. And I still think there is an issue that we don't, as in, you know, everybody across the system understand what that means. And I was beginning to think, you know, actually, how, how do we have those discussions front and centre and embedded in everything that we do? So I do think as organisations within healthcare, we need to think not just about the frameworks that we, we, we've got coming through the pipeline, like uh, Core 20 plus 5, but actually in, in decision making uh, processes, you know, what, what are the routines and rituals we have an organisation to make sure that this is not missed, but it isn't just another tick box on the bottom of a plan that someone says we've discussed it. So I do think there's something about um, building something in, into organisational um, routines, almost in a, in a top down, you will do it uh, type of way. But I'm also sort of thinking, yeah, we've got some brave leaders, but sometimes I think that bravery still needs to go a bit further. So two things really that um, I want to bring and, you know, Masood might be able to sort of reflect on this as we get there. But in industry, they often talk about open innovation. And that open innovation is, you know, your organisation inviting ideas and ways forward from outside of, of, of kind of its own boundaries. Um, and I don't think we do enough of that in the NHS. We talk about engaging and it's sort of getting a little bit into that open innovation space. But actually, um, you know, we, 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 we need to do that in a better way. So I think there's something that, that we need to learn from um, some of those action learning approaches that, that you've alluded to, going out to communities, understanding. Um, but fundamentally, um, we need to change the way that we do things. And I think part of that is um, leaders now being brave enough to give up and cede some of their power to other people um, from diverse communities um, so that we, we've got people um, you know, with seats at tables making decisions, um, but actually being empowered and trusted to take those actions as well. So I do think there's something different about our leadership approach, but I don't disagree with you. There, there are lots of inspirational leaders having these conversations, but we, we, we need to change um, the way that we lead in, in a little way as well. I think what you've Absolutely. talked about Terry is is really what what we try and achieve through through co-production. You know, if I look at how the NHS has traditionally functioned, you know, the 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 NHS has has kind of done things um, to our communities. Then it's done things for our communities, but it hasn't really done things with our communities. And it's that you know it, it, it the it's a nuanced understanding of what that means. And and I think, Trista, you touched upon it before as well, this, this idea of a feedback loop. There's no point in going and listening to our communities if we don't then involve them in as, as they, they are part of the solution. They have the answers. 
And I think we have to move away from this idea that just because we're the health professionals, we know best. Clearly, we don't. We have some of the answers and we have inputs, but we don't have all the answers and we have to work with our communities and we have to understand their lived experiences and we have to understand their needs in order to truly kind of engage and co-produce. Because again, engagement isn't enough unless it leads to the next steps. And what are those next steps? And those next steps are effectively what we talk about when we talk about co-production. But again, that co-production piece can't be paying lip service. It can't be having the occasional person on a committee and saying, oh, that's great. It's about really ensuring that we are working with our communities to kind of develop um, our, our services, our health services, and only then will they be responsive and attuned to what our community needs are. Thank you for that, Masood. Tristy, I hope that was some nice viewpoints. I don't know if you want to add anything to it at all or? Uh, I just want to chip in. Um, I think we have science and managerial approaches in the NHS overflowing. And I think what we talked about today is we need more humanity and trust within the communities that we are serving. Thank you so much. Excellent. So thank you for that, Tristy. Well, as I say, I hope that brings a nice viewpoint to your question. And that nicely brings us towards the end of our podcast. Um, so I'd like to obviously take this time to thank you all for uh, amazing contributions today. Uh, it was really, really interesting from my point of view to hear obviously all your different viewpoints. I'm sure that will be reciprocated with all of our listeners too. So I'd like to thank you all again for taking part.